Good morning, everyone. Um, I just want to tell you that it's page 494 that you're going to look up in the Bible. Now, just under the seat in front of you, there are black covers, covered Bibles. So if you'd like to read along, please turn to 494, and it's the chapter number three. Okay, now we're up to Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. So, after the events of chapter 1 and chapter 2, King Xerxes honoured Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Ajajite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they talked to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best entrance to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver 
to the king's administers for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then, on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders. To the king's sapped traps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various people. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order, order to kill, destroy and annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunge their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, do me a favour, would you, and keep your Bibles open to Esther chapter 3. We'll be rocking through 3 and 4. Uh, if I haven't said Happy New Year to you, well, Happy New Year to you. I hope it started off well. I'm going to pray, then we're going to get right underway. So let's pray. Heavenly Father God, uh, this book is weird. We just find it strange. Um, and yet it, you're all through it. And we need to see and hear that because you're all through our lives as well. So speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, do you believe in coincidences? Coincidences, you know, those remarkable combinations of circumstances that don't appear in any way to be connected. Do you believe in coincidences? I reckon we hear about coincidences quite often, um, but they often sound like this true story uh, a guy was writing. I just finished cycling across the United States. I found a Frisbee on the side of the road in New Mexico. It had the name Steve on it. When I reached California, I met up with a friend. I asked if he wanted to toss this Frisbee around a little. My friend said, wait a minute. And he called his friend Steve in New Mexico and asked if he still lived in New Mexico and if he had lost a Frisbee a few weeks earlier. And he did. And he had. And it was his. Well, what a coincidence. But you think, who cares? <laughs> like most coincidences you read about, it, they're kind of like that. They're, they're a little bit meaningless. They don't amount to much more than, oh, what are the chances of that happening? You know, what are the odds? But if you're a Christian, it seems to me, one of the things you want to be attuned to are those sort of coincidences that are more than just that, more than just, oh, you know, what are the probabilities? What are the odds of that? Um, coincidences which appear to have the fingerprints of God upon them and I reckon that happens when there's like more than one single coincidence 
when they're not all that random, but it relates to something that you've been praying about or meditating upon or just wishing for, because God is at work, you see, through the circumstances of our lives and of our church community, not just in the obvious ways that we would expect of him, you know, or through the miraculous. He's even at work when he appears to be not at work or absent or aloof or on leave. And that's one of the lessons you simply have to draw from this Old Testament book of Esther, which we're looking at this January, which doesn't even mention the name of God anywhere in the book. You cannot find it in there, and yet his fingerprints are all through it. Now, to see this in this story, we're taking it to a very dark place indeed. It's a place of hatred, where the very existence of the entirety of the Old Testament people of God is under threat, and in which Esther... The lady whom the book is named after is uniquely placed to act, if she's brave enough, that is. And so this is our second week in this intriguing, quirky book of the Old Testament. Last week we saw that the Jews, that's the Old Testament people of God, were in exile from the Promised Land and they were holed up in the Persian Empire, which covered a large swathe of the ancient world under the reign of King Xerxes. Now, it was a dangerous place in general, but especially dangerous for the Jews, God's Old Testament people. And yet by a, a bizarre twist of fate, or what we would call an intervention of God, a Jewess called Esther had gained the king's favour and found herself actually as his queen. Well, what will happen to her? And what will happen to her uncle Mordecai, who, who seems to spend most of his time skulking around in the outer courts of Xerxes' palace? But in doing so, he, he's not only helped... Esther uh, be ushered into the king's favour as the queen, but he's even saved the life of the king himself. Now that's what we saw last week. But as we get into our chapters for the day, three and four, the pressing question is not so much, oh, what's going to happen to Esther and Mordecai's individuals? It's about the Jewish nation as a whole, because their existence in their entirety is perilous. It seems that a hatred of God has led to a sweeping hatred of his people. Well, how has that possibly come about? Let's pick up the story in chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, that's the events of chapters 1 and 2, where Esther becomes queen, Mordecai saves the king's life, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai, our man on the ground, would not kneel down or pay him honour. Right, drop down with me to verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Having, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. <laughs> well, that seems like a bit of an overreaction, don't you reckon? <laughs> One bloke doesn't bow down to you, so you think to yourself, well, I might as well kill his whole people. Seems like an overreaction, and it looks like a, a garden variety case of anti-Semitism. What could possibly explain it? Well, firstly, it's, a, it's an ancient hatred. Haman, whom the king has elevated oddly to this position of prime minister of the empire, is an Agagite. Sure, you know that Agag was a king of the Amalekites who opposed King Saul. 
who was the first king of Israel. As it turns out, Mordecai, our hero at the ground level, is from the Israelite tribe of Benjamin and is also a descendant of Saul. And so this enmity goes back hundreds of years. In fact, it goes back even further to the time when the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, having been rescued from Egypt, when the Amalekites attacked a weary Israel on their journey out of slavery. So it's way more than a personal vendetta. It is a long and enduring hatred. It's furthermore a murderous hatred and completely unfounded, right? You just read that and you go, that is, wow, that's disproportionate, man. That is, it is unreasoned and unreasonable. And I think that actually tracks with some of the opposition that we encounter in our culture as Christians even today. You know, things uh, by and large don't get murderous for us, um, at least not yet. But when you encounter backlash in your place in life, because you're a Christian, because you maintain basic Christian beliefs, often the backlash just seems so way off, doesn't it? It seems so unnecessary, so excessive, so unjustified. Well, it was murderous for the people of God back then. I reckon it was about 10 years ago that um, the Archbishop, or the then Archbishop of Sydney called Peter Jensen, appeared on this once relevant panel TV show called Q&A. And uh, you can see him in this picture here if you've got extremely good eyesight. Sitting next to a, a comedian called Catherine Devaney. And uh, she was roundly criticised for her rude, mocking and decidedly unfunny manner in which she frequently talked over the top of the other guests, including Jensen. So much so that the Australian newspaper ran an article the next day entitled, Jensen kept his dignity in the lion's den. So dramatic. Uh, and it even called for the public broadcaster to apologise to Jensen, who was, in contrast, kind of winsome and faithful and articulate. This is what Catherine Devaney said about Jensen following that show. Sitting next to Jensen was an assault. Afterwards, I felt like I had been raped. You can be as evil as you like when you're quoting from the Bible. For him to be given as much airtime as he was was quite confronting. It was a physical feeling of repellent. You think, wow, it was an assault? Really? And since then, she's sort of faded into relative obscurity. But I just wonder if she had made similar comments in 2022 rather than 2012, whether she would have been lauded a hero in our culture. Well... Uh, Devaney was hardly murderous, but let me say it was murderous back in Esther's day because Haman was looking for a way to kill all of her people throughout the whole kingdom. And it was a superstitious and a religious hatred. It was a hatred that twisted the truth. And you can see that in Haman's appeal to the king in verse 8. Uh, follow along with me. Their customs, dear king, are different from those of all the other people, and they don't obey the king's laws. It's not in the, best, the king's best interest to tolerate them. And you think, well, of course, their customs are different, but it doesn't appear that they're a wild bunch of lawbreakers. And after all, wasn't it Mordecai the Jew who actually spared the king's life? How could it possibly not be in the king's best interests to have them stay, but to kill them? And that's how such a hatred works, doesn't it? It starts with a, a truth that blends into a deceitful half-truth, which is also a half-lie, and ends up being outright, outlandishly false. And finally, it was a comprehensive sort of hatred that went to every place, that went to every official, 
in every language to attack every single person among the people of God with complete destruction on a single day, which happened to be the day before Passover. How ironic is that? In our New Testaments, in places like Revelation and from the lips of Jesus himself, it suggests that the hostility that people have towards our God often finds expression in an unreasonable, twisted, excessive and enduring hostility towards his people. That explains why some of us can have a hard time. Now, that, that we don't all experience this right now doesn't mean that some of us don't, certainly across our world this very day. And it doesn't mean that we won't experience it at some stage in our future. But I don't really want to harp on that because it can kind of create a persecution complex among us that is unhelpful. So as we turn from Esther 3 to Esther chapter 4, we see that this dark background of persecution is met with a pressing need for God's intervention. For him to send a human mediator into the foreground while he's at work in the background. And so as you'd imagine, chapter 4 opens with Mordecai in deep distress when he discovers the king has agreed to this deceitful plot to, to attack and kill all the Jews. In fact, um, chapter 4 verse 3 tells us that in every province of the Persian Empire, all 127 of them, there was great mourning amongst the Jews, the people of God, with fasting, weeping and wailing in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther, who was in the safety and comfort of the citadel, discovered that Mordecai at ground level was distressed, there begins a series of interchanges between Esther and her messenger, Hathak, great name, to Mordecai, and then back from Mordecai through Hathak to Esther, back and forth. I mean, Hathak was getting his steps up on that day, right? And uh, the back and forths really heightened the tension because you realise that there was no direct line between the Jews on the street and the queen in her palace. So let's pick up one of these interactions from verse 8 of chapter 4. He, that's Mordecai, ground level hero, also gave him, the messenger, a copy of the text of the edict for the Jews' annihilation which had been published in Susa, the city, to show to Esther and explain it to her and he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence and to beg for mercy and plead with the king for her people. So you can sense that desperate need for a mediator, someone to intervene on God's behalf at ground level. Who could possibly do that? Well, of course, it's Queen Esther. She should go into the king's presence and beg him to show mercy to her own people. But she hadn't even told him that she was one of her people, a Jewess. And that wasn't the only problem that she explains to the messenger in verse 11. Everyone knows you can't just go into the king's presence uninvited. Everyone knows the standing practice is that if you just bail up to the king uninvited, you get put to death. Unless he kind of extends the royal gold scepter to indicate that he's sparing your life. Everyone knows that rule, says Esther. It even applies to me. And even worse, she says... I haven't even seen the king for a month. He hasn't wanted to be with me for 30 days. This is a great danger. This whole business of being the mediator, the one who will intervene, is not without peril. I mean, the odds are 
you could die. So the messenger, poor guy, it, it, it's hard being the messenger, isn't it? He uh, goes back to Mordecai and he reports Esther's message. And then Mordecai sends him back to Esther <laughs> once again. I mean, it's, it's a 15,000 step day, isn't it? And it's worth reading it out in full. Let's read from verse 13. Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Very famous words. Who knows? Well, a couple of things to notice. Being under the protection of the king is no protection at all if you are against the will of God. Mordecai knows because God has made covenant promises hundreds of years earlier that the Israelites were not going to be annihilated. They would become as numerous as the stars in the sky or as the sand on the shores and one from among their brood would bring blessing to the whole world. He knew that they would not be wiped out. But in his desperation, he also had this uncanny sense that Esther would be the deliverer this time around. It was not without risk for her to go into the king's presence, but it was not without risk to remain silent either. But friends, more notably than that, Mordecai just had a hunch that it was no coincidence that Esther had ended up in the royal palace. I mean, verse 14 is probably the most well-known, most important verse in the whole book. Who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. He's not definitive. He might be wrong, but he can just sort of trace the coincidences and join the dots. Can it be mere coincidence, beautiful queen, that the former queen was dismissed years earlier? Mere coincidence that the king's advisors suggested a beauty contest and you are quite beautiful and you won it and so became queen? Coincidence that your relative Mordecai stumbled upon that assassination plot and saved the king's life? Coincidence that when Haman superstitiously rolled the dice or cast the lot to decide the day of the year on which this plot would be carried out, it was almost a year down the track. Like, imagine if it was the next week. Too many coincidences to discount. And whilst there was no direct word from God to say so, who knows, Esther? Maybe this is why you find yourself where you are. What will you do? Will you cower in fear? Or will you step out in faith? Well, we don't get to see how it works out, so you've got to come back next week. But with fasting and presumably prayer, backed up by the fasting and presumably prayer of the entire Jewish nation as well as Esther's entourage, she says in verse 16 these words, When this prayer and fasting is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. You see, Mordecai's who knows is met with a, and if I perish, I perish. But you see her clear willingness to risk it. There's a desperate need for a mediator, a human deliverer to intervene for God. And Esther resolves that despite the risks, she will take that role upon herself. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, I imagine that you can see the figure of Jesus, 
in the shadow of Esther. After all, he was a mediator. He was someone who bridged that gap at great personal peril on our behalf when he was born among us and when he died for us. Christopher Ash in his uh, lovely, lovely little commentary wrote this. He said, Esther bravely faced the possibility of death. But this greater mediator, Jesus, faced its certainty. And he did perish for the life of his people, which of course includes you and I if you've put your trust in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. We have a mediator, a human intercessor, one who pleaded with his life for our deliverance. His deliverance was successful, but my goodness, the cost was certain and considerable. There was no, and if I perish, I perish, like he perished unavoidably so that we might not. And so, friends, I, I think that in seeing just a glimpse of the Lord Jesus in the bravery of Esther, it ought to bring us to a place of gratitude for all that he has done for us. I mean, no small thing. We can scarcely imagine what it must have been like for Esther to go to see the king, to plead for her people. She might die in doing so, but how much more? How much greater then is our deliverer, the Lord Jesus, who knowingly and willingly submitted himself to life among us and then to death for us, to bring about our ultimate deliverance from all those ancient foes of sin and death and the devil it ought to make us well up in thankfulness and i really trust it fills you with joy and wonder and gratitude before we think of anything further but having done that i, I do further trust that the story of esther makes you just contemplate the various arenas in your life places where you find yourself and and wonder whether god has placed you there for his purpose I mean, probably not as a deliverer, right? Let's not have delusions of grandeur. But uh, maybe you're a witness to his delivery of you and the offer of delivery that he extends to all people. Maybe that's your family or your household or your workplace or your group of friends. You know, maybe you've got influence in your profession and you can be creative or courageous, certainly courteous, uh, and, and find ways to testify to Jesus and his delivery of you. You know, maybe you're sitting down to a work lunch and you just say, would you mind if I just said grace? Maybe you can just insert uh, a phrase like, I thank God for whatever it is into your conversation. You know, maybe you could just say, my minister said, and honestly, it doesn't matter what your minister said, because you're just saying, I'm a Christian, and I want you to know it. And if you want to know more, you can ask me about it later. Like, there's just courageous and courteous and creative ways to inject into your life, your sphere of influence where you can testify, where you can do something, where you can be God's person in that particular place. I reckon there'll be risks in doing that. You want to say grace at a work lunch? Like Colin from accounts is going to think you're weird? And that's especially so in our culture where it's increasingly hostile to those with Christian faith. So maybe it's not just about they think you're weird. But who knows, friends, who knows that you have come to your position for such a time as this? The last thing I reckon it's worth us noting, in addition to a, a sense of gratitude to Jesus, our human deliverer, the one who pleaded for us with his own life, and also in addition to just pondering the places of influence 
uh, in which God has placed us this year. I think the story of Esther encourages us very strongly to see that when it comes to the Christian life, there are really no such thing as coincidences, not often at least. If God can work through the monumental events of creation and salvation, it's not too big a thing for him to work through the small details of our lives. Right? He doesn't have to work through miracles, through grand dreams and visions, through great charismatic leaders and priests and prophets. It's really helpful to know as we live our Christian lives, as we live out our kingdom calling, really also as exiles, as foreigners in a world that is unfriendly or indifferent to Jesus. It's good to know. And I reckon it's even better to know when, when it really feels to you like God is on leave. He's on a break from being involved and concerned about your life. I want to tell you this morning, friends, he is present even when he appears most absent and most hidden. He may not speak audibly. He may not work miraculously among us. But you know, because of the work of Christ, he is always for us. And you know because of his Holy Spirit who lives within us, he is always with us. And so he continues to work among us and he is always present with us. Hidden, perhaps, but absent, inactive and unconcerned, never, never. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father God, we, we do confess that at times it feels like you are absent from our lives and we're sorry for that, that is a foolish way that we think. We recognise that you are always present and always at work, often through those many coincidences which are just little reminders, little taps on our shoulders that um, you're at play and that we recognise that you are both with us and for us through the finished work of Jesus on our behalf and the presence of your Holy Spirit within us. So help us to lean into that, to consider how we might be your people in our place this very day, that we might bring you honour and glory. Who knows? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.